it's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It is Tuesday, January 3rd, 2023. A brand new broadcast year here on the Guy Benson Show. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm Guy Benson, your host political editor at townhall.com, a Fox News contributor. I also hold down the fort here on this program every weekday between 3 and 6 p.m. Eastern. Our online home is GuyBensonShow.com, GuyBensonShow.com. Podcast is free, on demand, every day. Lots of other goodies at that website. You can also find us on the podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. Fox News Podcasts, for example, FoxNewsPodcast.com. Many options for that if you can't listen as we air between those hours, 3 and 6 Eastern. Here's our lineup today. Will Kane will be joining us, Fox & Friends weekend co-host later on this hour. Chad Pergram will join us in the next hour to try to help us make sense of the chaos on Capitol Hill today, which I'll get to here in just a moment. Andy McCarthy, our Fox News colleague, no relation to my knowledge to Kevin McCarthy, He'll be here in the next hour as well. In our final hour, General Jack Keane. Some developments in recent days in Ukraine. We will get his expertise in our final hour today. Fox News alert as we come on the air here. They are now on a second ballot for Speaker of the House. Just a few blocks from where I sit at the Fox News Bureau here in our nation's capital, the Tony Snow Studios. The first ballot, which is typically where the Speaker of the House is elected, and that person secures control over the gavel, came and went with Democrat Hakeem Jeffries actually winning the most votes. Now, you have to get to a majority to become Speaker of the House, but the Republicans, in their very first series of votes, as a new nominal, at least, majority in the House of Representatives, the Republicans have now twice failed to elect a speaker. It's embarrassing. It's embarrassing. We had McCarthy here in studio a couple weeks ago, right before Christmas. I was asking him about this, the dynamics, the whip count, what's it looking like. He was making concessions. He's made even more concessions. And apparently that did no good at all. On the first ballot, which happened maybe, what, an hour ago, hour plus ago, there were 19 Republicans who voted for someone other than Kevin McCarthy for speaker. Then Jim Jordan got up and gave this rip-roaring speech in support of Kevin McCarthy. Someone nominated Jim Jordan of Ohio anyway as a potential speaker candidate. And it looks like McCarthy is now on track to lose just as many votes in the second round as he did last time. Maybe more. The vote is currently happening. They're calling the roll. And right now, Hakeem Jeffries, the Democrats' new leader in the House, New York City congressman, 
leftist, election denier, conspiracy theorist, they are absolutely falling in line, the Democrats, to vote for their guy, which is easier to do in the minority. But it looks entirely likely that for a second consecutive House Speaker vote, the number one vote getter is going to be a Democrat in a chamber that is going to be, at least in theory, controlled. I will use that term loosely by the Republican Party. Now, let me just say this. I have some sound to play. I have a few more things to say on this. This too shall pass. There's going to be a speaker elected at some point. It's going to be a Republican. In fact, no other House business can move forward without a speaker getting elected first. It hasn't happened for about 100 years for this battle to go past the first round, beyond a first ballot. Well, we're on ballot number two, and we're destined now for ballot number three. They're not going to get this done on the second one already. Right now, Hakeem Jeffries has 10 more votes than McCarthy does because, yet again, 19 Republicans have defected. McCarthy didn't gain a single vote, at least up till this moment, a single vote, at least in terms of the numbers, that he lost in the first round. So something at some point will give. There will be a Republican speaker. However, to me, this is an egg-on-the-face moment for House Republicans. And I say that. Let me be clear about this. As someone who is not exactly a giant Kevin McCarthy fan, right? He and I are friendly. We've met a few times, spoken on the phone a few times. Seems like a nice guy. Probably agree with him on what, 80, 90 percent of the votes that he's taken, maybe more. But I'm not someone who's got like the Team Kevin cap on with Kevin McCarthy pom-poms. That's just not really how I roll. I'm not trying to run the guy down or diminish him. He's not my favorite Republican leader of all time, at least during the period of time that I've been paying attention to politics for various reasons. It's not an attack on him. I'm just saying it's not like, you know, I close my eyes and say, okay, who's a good, effective Republican leader? Kevin McCarthy isn't really the person who comes to mind. And maybe if given the opportunity, he will disabuse me of those thoughts as Speaker of the House. I think he's done some things well as the minority leader, other things not so well. The point that I'm making here is I'm not coming on the air spitting hot fire anger because I believe that Kevin McCarthy is being dealt in indignity and I'm here defending Kevin McCarthy's sacred honor or something like that. That's not the point of this. The point is Republicans had an underwhelming election. In November, we've talked about a lot of the reasons why. Former President Trump offered some thoughts on that recently. We might get to that today, certainly tomorrow, if not, because I want to address that. People have their various theories. But it's just a fact that Democrats, historically speaking, did rather well, historically well in these midterms, which seemed primed for a wipeout of the party in power. I think they deserved it, but for various reasons, that's not what we got. But we did get a narrow 
Republican majority in the House. This is the very first impression that that new majority is making to voters. And the impression in the early going is one of dysfunction and chaos. Where Republicans appear incapable, and this could be a long, painful, obnoxious, ridiculous process. They appear incapable of picking their own leader in one chamber of commerce, in one chamber of Congress. The only one that they control. First impressions, right? This is the old adage, the old cliche. First impressions matter. And this is the first impression that Republicans are offering to the country. One that they don't have their bleep together. And unfortunately, that would appear to be an accurate impression. Not a good first impression, but an accurate one. To me, the purpose of a Republican majority in the House, especially considering that Joe Biden remains president and considering that Chuck Schumer remains, unfortunately, majority leader in the Senate, the purpose of a Republican House majority in 2023 and 2024, number one, is to stop the Democratic agenda. And number two, to signal to voters that Republicans can be entrusted with power and that they have an ability in good faith to govern. Now, look, as someone who is an ideological conservative, I actually wouldn't be all that upset to see the government do not a whole lot of stuff. Right? Gridlock is sometimes a feature. The last two years we had not gridlock because the Democrats controlled everything and they did a lot of damage, in my view, to the country. Putting a break, slamming a break on all of that was the point of the midterm elections. And the Republicans' lever of power that they have now grabbed, thanks to voters, who gave House Republicans three million more votes than Democrats nationwide, I would just point out. That lever of power is to say no to the Biden-Schumer agenda. That doesn't mean say no to everything, say no to your own leadership, say no to governing at all. It means saying no to one-party rule. I'm very glad that that's the case, and I'm not really clutching my pearls or terrified of divided government and less things getting done, fewer things getting done. That being said, there is an expectation, I think, among most voters that people who go to Washington are there to govern. And if this is any indication of things to come, the Republicans are going to have a brutal couple of years in store for them. If you can get a small handful of people, in this case, it's a bigger than expected handful of people, right? Half a dozen would have been enough to throw a wrench in all of this. They just finished up the second round of voting just now. The second ballot is over, and guess what? The totals were completely unchanged from round one. Hakeem Jeffries, the Democrat, embarrassingly in first place with 212 votes. They all stuck together behind their election denier. Kevin McCarthy in second place at 203 votes, so he's nine votes behind. 
And then this time, 19 votes, again, went to someone else. In this case, they all went to Jim Jordan. Who doesn't want it? He does endorse McCarthy. But they put him up, and he got 19 votes this time. Last time, the 19 votes were split among a few different people. One, two, three, four. There were five people who got votes in the first round, totaling 19. This time, all 19 as a block went behind Jim Jordan. And so off to a third round, apparently, we will go. I'm not saying that that's some sort of guarantee that this dysfunction is going to spill over into the Republican House majority for the next two years, but it seems like that's maybe not a bad bet to make. And I cannot imagine something more helpful to the Democrats and to the media than for the very first votes of the new Republican House to be an abject humiliation for the Republicans done by the Republicans. And for what? McCarthy's given these guys all sorts of concessions to the point, I would argue, of weakness. What's the point of this? What's the end goal here? If they want someone other than McCarthy, who? They've been very cagey. They won't say who the next person would be. Could it be Steve Scalise? If they don't get their way on some other vote a few weeks from now, a few months from now, did they throw the speaker out or grind the whole thing to a halt? Kevin McCarthy, whether you love him, hate him, or are ambivalent, I'm more in the ambivalent category, pluses and minuses. Kevin McCarthy won the vote among House Republicans. The the conference got together. The caucus got together. The House Republicans voted. He won 85% of the vote. That's not 100%. It's 85%. You know, at some point, elections have consequences, including internal ones. So, Honestly, I have no idea where this goes next. We're already in unusual territory. It's been 100 years, roughly 100 years, since they went even to a second ballot. Second ballot achieved nothing, like no actual change in the vote tally. So now it's on to a third ballot. And it's not like McCarthy is within a, you know, a few votes here or there. It's not like he's sitting at, you know, 215 and needs three more. He's well short. He's 15 votes short and has been for the first two rounds. So here's the first impression, America, of the new Republican majority in the House of Representatives. This was a train wreck weeks in the making. We sort of saw it coming. We thought it might get resolved somehow. It got the opposite of resolved. And it does not make me terribly sanguine about what this Republican majority is going to be able to accomplish. Even just putting pressure on the Senate and Biden by passing things, popular things that the American people want. If you have enough members who are willing to make perfect enemy of the good, this could be a very bumpy ride. And to what end? Seems like some of these people just love the attention. Matt Gates out there, Lauren Boebert, whole crew. In fact, there's a soundbite that I'm going to get to when we come back that I think underscores the nihilism at play here. That's what bothers me. If they were doing this strategically for a real purpose that made sense, it could be like, okay, it could be an, a painful, embarrassing, uncomfortable day, but then we get to, you know, 
option B. It's just unclear what that is. This doesn't seem strategic. This seems chaotic for the sake of chaos. Thumb in the eye for the sake of doing it. Flexing muscles to show that they can do it, but for what? So far, the biggest winner here has been the Democrats on day one of the Republican House, supposedly. I got a break. Running late in my very first segment back in the new year. (laughs) Happy New Year, everyone. It is the Guy Benson Show. We'll be right back. The Guy Benson Show. More next. Hey, folks, it's your man, Keyshawn Johnson, here to talk about Angie, formerly known as Angie's List, your go-to home services, marketplace for getting all your jobs done well. Now you might be wondering, what exactly is Angie? Well, let me tell you. It's the nation's largest home services marketplace, connecting over 150 million homeowners with skilled professionals to tackle any project, big or small. As a homeowner myself, I always have things I want to work on for my house, whether it's general home renovations or fun projects like putting in a pool. With over 200,000 pros in their network, Angie makes it a breeze to research, compare, and hire pros, ensuring every job is done well. Whether you're fixing a leaky faucet or planning a full kitchen renovation, Angie's got your back. And get this, folks. Angie's pros aren't just any old contractors. They're your neighbors, often running small businesses right in your community. Plus, they've been rated and reviewed by others in your area. So you know you're getting quality service. So why stress over home projects when you can turn to Angie? From finding the best price to scheduling a pro at your convenience, Angie's got you covered every step of the way. So get started today at Angie.com. That's Angie.com or download the app today to get started on getting all your jobs done. That's Angie, your trusted ally in home services. And they even came to the position where one, Matt Gates said, I don't care if we go to plurality and we elect Hakeem Jeffries and it hurts the new frontline members not to get reelected. Well, that's not about America. And I will always fight to put the American people first, not a few individuals that want something for themselves. So we may have a battle on the floor, but the battle is for the conference and the country. I'm Guy Benson. That was Kevin McCarthy earlier, quoting Matt Gates, one of the backbenchers from Florida who's one of the most uh, recalcitrant members against McCarthy. And there were multiple reports coming out of the closed-door meeting earlier in the day that Gates did say he and others would, like, prefer to see Hakeem Jeffries become Speaker of the House than Kevin McCarthy because they would would fight him. What? What on earth is that about? I'm sorry, like, you can't go around— talking about what a true conservative you are and all these other people are rhinos, when you actually are effectively aiding and abetting the Democrats. What do you mean you would fight Speaker Hakeem Jeffries? The Republicans won the election. The American people want a Republican House of Representatives. I think some of that's probably just posturing from Gates, but what a ridiculous thing to say. Marjorie Taylor Greene, who I do not quote favorably very often, she said, if my friends in the Freedom Caucus, Matt Gates and others, will not take the win when they have it, they're proving to the country they don't care about doing the right thing for America. They're just proving they're just destructionist. When she's a voice of reason, perhaps there's a problem. 
So the destructionists so far winning. The mess continues. A third ballot awaits, and we'll see if any votes start to move. If not, is there a plan B, a plan C? Stay tuned. It's the Guy Benson Show. We will be back. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton with Row. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. It's our first new show of the new year. I'm Guy Benson. Glad to have you along. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. Podcast is always free. And joined now by Will Kane, co-host of Fox & Friends Weekend, between 6 and 10 a.m. Eastern, Saturdays and Sundays on Fox News Channel. Host of the Will Kane Podcast as well at FoxNewsPodcast.com. Will, it's great to have you back and Happy New Year to you. Happy New Year to you, Guy. Before we get into some of these sports-related topics that I wanted to chat with you about, I just want to get your reaction to this breaking news unfolding here in Washington. We're now in the House of Representatives. They have done two rounds of balloting for the Speaker, and we don't have a Speaker of the House. In fact, the votes against Kevin McCarthy on the Republican side, 19 of them in the first round, not a single one of them moved to him in the second round. So now at some point we're going to see a third round with very little movement, folks not budging. What do you make of this? Well, I'm not surprised, and I don't know – I'm interested to know if you were surprised by this. But certainly in the months leading up to this, you could get a sense within certainly the conservative base and then within some of the Republican caucus that there's real suspicion towards Kevin McCarthy and anybody that has been seen as establishment or even leadership in the past when leadership has not lived up to the expectations of much of the conservative base. It brings us into a debate that we're going to have to have on an ongoing basis, and that is one of ideology versus practicality. And I have seen, for example, Dan Crenshaw. I saw Brian Kilmeade this morning on Fox and Friends say voting against Kevin McCarthy at this point is voting for Democrats that you're handing leadership over to your opponent. You know, I do think there is a real philosophical question to have, Guy, at some point of if leadership doesn't execute your vision, if they don't execute and fight for your principles, what's the point in power? And I just think for much of the conservative base, the simple – Possession of power has not delivered the vision of American governance that we thought we cast our vote. Yeah, I mean, I think that's true for a lot of people in the base. No question about that. Also, Republicans didn't win at the ballot box to really have any real control this year. The function that I made this point, the function of the House majority is to stop the Democratic agenda. And in order to do anything in the House, you need to have a speaker first. I'm not a huge McCarthy fan myself, but like. It just seems like there's no plan. Like if if there was a stated plan where they said, 
Kevin McCarthy has committed these sins against conservatism, and and I thought they were legitimate. And they said someone who has a realistic shot of being speaker who would be better is so and so, and let's go for them. It's like okay, then you know a day or two of embarrassment. It's like you know probably worth it. It just doesn't seem like there's a plan here. Like Andy Biggs is not going to be speaker. Jim Jordan, they just nominated Jim Jordan. He got 19 votes. He didn't want to be nominated. He gave a speech for Kevin McCarthy. It moved zero votes. It just kind of seems like it's an embarrassment for the Republicans where this is their very first vote as a diminished majority in terms of what the expectations were. And there's not just, Will, the concern about sending a message to base voters, some of whom feel betrayed, also to other voters being like, hey, we're the Republicans and we can actually do things. We are a responsible governing party. I'm not sure this is putting a great foot forward on day one. I think I think you're right, and and I think that your point about a coherent plan is is very well. Your 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 vote in in opposition can't simply be a fit. It has to be an exercise of a a real and workable plan. And look, I'm not going to pretend to be an expert on the mechanics of inside Washington D.C. politics, but I do think it's interesting to see what's happening within. The Republican coalition. It's also happening to some extent within the Democratic coalition. It's also happening in the United States of America geographically. This fractionalization of what we thought – I don't know if we thought, but what we were sold was a two-party system, a, two-par, a two-part vision of America that doesn't really hold together in, in modern-day America, either driven by – some would say you know, opportunists. Others would say a real scrambling of the issues. Um, and I, I'm in this camp. I, I believe that what, you know, as young as you are, guy, you know, what you and I grew up with in terms of understanding what it means to be a Republican and what it means to a Democrat, be a Democrat, has very little application to the issues that actually affect Americans in 2022. And then, therefore, some. You know, is, you know, is the word fractionalization or balkanization of America politically and geographically in so many different ways is inevitable. Yeah, I mean, what I would say is watching this all play out, the Democrats are all smiles. I mean, they are loving this. They are ooing and aahing at every vote against McCarthy. They're all voting in lockstep. I said that's easier to do when you're in the minority. They're all voting for Hakeem Jeffries over and over again. He's their guy. I keep pointing out he's an election denier. All these things that they say is so terrible. But they're unified behind him. What's frustrating is, and I'm not saying the Republicans should always be exactly like the Democrats. The Democrats had this exact same size majority in the last Congress. And they got a lot, unfortunately, a lot done because ultimately, even though they did have these different factions and they would – talk about each other in the press, and there would be threats made and that sort of thing. Ultimately, when push came to shove, they all got on the same page and voted for their agenda. And Pelosi was very good at wrangling those votes and counting them. And now it's like, all right, there's there's a new sheriff in town. He is TBD or she is TBD at this point. And I think the opportunity for a governing majority, at least in the House, the way the Democrats were able to wield one the last couple of years is looking rather far-fetched based on just the first few hours of what should be this Republican majority. And we'll see what happens here in round three. Will Kane, I do want to ask you about this very scary, frightening incident last night, Monday Night Football. I had been watching the Rose Bowl, watched Penn State uh, win handily over Utah. Then it went over to Joe Buck and Troy Aikman and 
team at ESPN, and they were doing NFL stuff, I guess Bengals hosting the Bills. And I watched a few minutes of it and then went off to do a few other things. Then I saw social media starting to blow up with a lot of concerned messages. And then, of course, I went back and saw what happened. Uh, Extremely disturbing. DeMar Hamlin, safety for Buffalo, seemed to take a hit right in the chest and suffered a cardiac arrest. Uh, There was a, a statement put out just a little while ago by the Bills saying that he remains in critical condition. There was a statement earlier from the family thanking everyone for their support and their prayers. Uh, Just as someone who has covered sports professionally, and you and I talk sports all the time here on the air, I'm not sure I can remember something quite like this. And it is a huge national news story really transcending just the realm of sports fans. Yeah, and I think you chose the right word when you said it's disturbing. Uh, We're just not used to seeing somebody have CPR administered to them on the field. And, you know, when we when we watch football, we've come to expect medical emergencies. but They almost always take the form of head or spinal trauma. And, I, you know, I was listening on the radio. Guy, I was at a family Christmas and driving back with my son in the car. And um, you hear it, and you're like, oh, no. And you're thinking, you know, we're in another situation of somebody potentially fighting off paralysis in their life. And then when I eventually got to see it and heard them describe what was that, what was happening, it's just – it's it's not as though it never has happened. Um, people are pointing out in the 1970s something like this happened, and and then Reggie Brown in the 1990s wasn't breathing, but his was more due to, you know, the spinal and and head trauma. Um, you know, in in when I first started at ESPN, guy, you and I have known each other for a long time, and I I first started at ESPN in 2015, and I did investigative um, reporting for Outside the Lines, their investigative news program. And one of the first pieces they assigned me to do, ultimately it didn't end up airing, was on this this type of injury called uh, commotio cortis. Uh, it's a myocardial contusion. I sound like I'm trying to play doctor, but I only know this stuff <laughs> enough to get me in trouble and having done a little bit of research. But it's a very, very rare occurrence. And most of the time you hear about it in baseball or lacrosse, uh, even soccer, where you have a blunt force to the chest area um, and then it disrupts the electrical rhythm of the heart and can send someone into cardiac arrest. I don't know if that's what happened here. Many people are saying so. Last night they'd have had cardiologists on the Fox News Channel or ESPN looking at this from afar and saying that's what it could be. But it is reflective of the thing that I researched some some years ago, and there's really not much you can do, guy. I mean, there's you know uh, there's been some push to have AEDs available at every sporting event, and certainly there is in the NFL. They have everything available. It's the next best place to be from a hospital room um, in terms of the number of doctors and equipment and response time right there on an NFL field. But, you know, it's just an incredibly rare occurrence that I don't think we sit here today and talk about the game of football and how dangerous the game of football is. It is dangerous. There's no doubt about it. But I think, you know, what what we saw happen is very sad and, and hopefully, if it turns out to be the case, a very rare occurrence in professional yeah, and sports. And kind of like a freak a freak incident where it takes just exactly the wrong confluence of unlikely events to all happen perfectly in this horribly imperfect way to then create this 
cardiac disruption that obviously afflicted DeMar Hamlin in some way. And we don't we don't have all the answers. And I know some of the speculation out there is from doctors. Some of it has been extremely reckless stuff, people pushing agendas. I don't want to get into any of that. I do want to ask you, though, Will, and I think your point about that particular condition, other experts have made that point. I think it's a, it's a very reasonable hypothesis to have at this point. There has been criticism of the NFL and the indecision, how long it took them to say we're not going to continue playing this game tonight, people going after the commissioner, Roger Goodell. Uh, do you think that is warranted criticism? Do you think that's sort of uh, maybe fog of war type thing where people are, are just looking to lash out at someone? What do you think about that? I don't think so. You know, I don't think criticism is fair of the NFL. They're dealing with real-time information in a tragedy that has not occurred at least in 50 years on their fields, at least in that exact type of scenario. And the fact that they took a little over an hour to officially call the game is not something – I think the world is full of armchair quarterbacks. And in the age of social media, it's immediate armchair quarterbacking. And the NFL and the game of football itself are very easy targets when it comes – to this armchair quarterbacking. I don't, I don't find criticism in allowing the NFL to take in as much information as possible before making a decision. From everything that I've read, deferring to the teams, deferring to the players, I think the NFL handled this as, as well as can be expected. Because there was at least a report or two that I saw that at some point the teams were told by the league, you've got five minutes to warm up, we're going to play again, and the coaches said, hell no, and pulled their teams off the field in the locker room. That has been disputed and denied by the NFL. I think if that had occurred, that would be something very much worth criticizing. It just sounds like maybe something was lost in translation. It's unclear what actually happened there, just like it's unclear exactly what happened to DeMar Hamlin. I just think maybe some of this is people are so upset by what they saw a young man fighting for his life after taking a weird angle, hard hit to his chest. I guess humans just try to process discomfort and that, that disturbed sense of something is deeply wrong and they channel it into something. And I understand that it's part of human nature. I just think in that moment, you don't want to make unfair scapegoats out of people who had nothing to do with it. So I've been just sort of myself tapping the brakes on jumping on, a, on any of those bandwagons. You know, Guy, that's the responsible place to be. And I'm going to touch the third rail that, 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 um, that people are, I think, in both camps taking the wrong approach to. So what you're talking about earlier in our conversation when there is irresponsible speculation, perhaps on social media, what you're talking about is people blaming this on, I assume, blaming this on the vaccine. What I think the appropriate, um, which, by the way, you know, I have seen the data. I understand that vaccine injury exists, you know, and there is a disturbing amount, at least of anecdotal cases out there, of very young people suffering from heart failures, heart conditions. But the pr- appropriate place to be as a journalist, as an inquisitive person, as somebody who wants to be right about this, is to close no doors and also form no definitive conclusion because you have incomplete information. You know, I talked to you about the piece I did earlier at ESPN. I don't know that that's the case, and it's important that I say that I don't know that's the case. I do notice the similarities from what I've reported in the past, but I think every door has to be opened, none closed until you arrive at the truth. And so I don't, I don't think it's appropriate to uh, – You know, I think you're exactly right. Human instinct is to find blame. Blame is an easy way for us to reestablish control over a tragedy. 
there's no easy place to lay blame right now. We can't reestablish control over this tragedy. Tragedy happens in life. But at the same time, we can't also fit it into our preconceived ideas or political agendas on either side. Of Which that I know people, people stampede to do that sometimes, and I just think Absolutely. in many cases it's the wrong thing to do, and we, we saw some of that yesterday and today. I see the NFL saying that the game, which was underway, the Bills and the Bengals, two very good teams, will not resume any time this week. So that's just an interesting football note. Very quickly, Will, less than a minute, on a, on a lighter note, football-related, some amazing bowl games. I'll probably talk about bowl season later on in the show. Extremely entertaining games up and down the dial throughout bowl season. A couple really stand out. You said all of this just whets your appetite even more for the coming 12-team playoff, yes? No doubt about it. Yeah, I mean, I, look, I'm from, I'm from Texas, and I readily own up to all of my Texas-based biases. But, you know, the national media told me Texas didn't – I mean, TCU had no hope against uh, Michigan. I didn't think that was accurate, and it turns, it turns out to be the case. You know, watching Tulane beat USC, I just think that as, Tulane wouldn't have made a 12-team playoff. They were ranked number 16. But I – you know, the the dismissal of the 12-team playoff has been twofold. Oh, it'll make the regular season meaningless, and oh, it'll end up being the same three or four teams anyway. I don't think so. I think when we get a 12-team playoff, we're going to have upsets. We're going to have excitement. I'm not saying that Boise State's going to win the national championship, but I am saying TCU's in the national championship final. Yeah, <laughs> so and we see that we see when, it in, you know, March Madness every year. It's madness for a reason. It's not just the one and two seeds, you know, going all the way. I, I have a mixed mind on that. We can debate that perhaps in the future. We've got to leave it there, though, up on a break. Will Kane, co-host of Fox & Friends Weekend, also host of the popular Will Kane podcast, foxnewspodcast.com. Will, appreciate it. Happy New Year. We'll talk soon. Thank you, man. Back after this on The Guy Benson Show. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. That I will well and faithfully perform the duties of governor, the duties of governor, on which I am now about to enter, on which I am now about to enter. So help me God. So help me God. Thank you. Back on the Guy Benson Show. Dysfunction and chaos ruling the day here in Washington, D.C., but an orderly transition. It's even more orderly when it's the same guy. Down in Florida, Tallahassee, earlier today, Governor Ron DeSantis, fresh off his 19-and-a-half-point victory in that state, sworn in for his second term, taking the oath of office. You heard the very end of it there. And then he gave a barn burner of an inaugural address. Now, not just elected, because he was elected last time by 0.4%, but this time with a real mandate. A real sense of purpose, I think a brand for himself and for the state. And it was a speech that I think would be appealing to many Floridians and many Americans. Let's put it that way. We'll probably get into some of that and play you some of the audio tomorrow. I want you to hear it. But congratulations to the Republican chief executive of Florida with his moment in the sun that he richly earned down there in the Sunshine State. Another hour of The Guy Benson Show coming up. Stay with us. From the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Kai Benson Show.
It's a brand new hour here on The Guy Benson Show. Happy New Year. I'm Guy Benson. Thank you for listening. 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern every weekday. GuyBensonShow.com for our free podcast every day on demand. Fox News alert as we begin our middle hour. The Dow closing down just a hair, down 12 points, ending at 33,134 as the markets are back open. In fact, it looks like it changed just a tad as the market settled, so down 10 points at the close to 33,136. Another Fox News alert. The saga continues on Capitol Hill. They are getting ready for round three of voting for Speaker of the House because the first two were inconclusive, where no one reached a majority. Nineteen Republican holdouts declined to vote for Kevin McCarthy in the first round, then again in the second round. And literally seconds ago, Steve Scalise, who is the top deputy to Kevin McCarthy, who's been a strong McCarthy backer, he just gave what is now the third nominating speech on behalf of McCarthy. On round one, the first ballot, it was Elise Stefanik. Round two, it was Jim Jordan. This was Steve Scalise. I want to play this for you to give you a sense of the messaging, the energy inside the chamber. He got big ovations from the members. Then I have a few more thoughts to give, but let's listen together. This was like literally just a few seconds ago in the House chamber, Steve Scalise of Louisiana. To get big things done to solve the problems. And I hope when we get through today that all of the members on both sides of the aisle will join together with us to solve the problems, to address inflation that is crushing middle-class families, to get control over spending that's driving that inflation. Will the House be in order? And we all know what those problems are. We've been talking about them for a long time. We've been proposing legislation for a long time. In fact, it was Kevin McCarthy who put together task forces over a year ago to get members engaged in the process of not just talking about what we don't like, not just talking about what the problems are. We know what those problems are. But how do you fix those problems? And so we started rolling those bills out. We've attempted to bring bills on this floor to address inflation, to lower the cost of goods when families go to the grocery store and they can't even buy all the food they need for their families if they can find that food on their shelf. But those bills were rejected. If a family has trouble putting gas in the tank to make it to the grocery store, Because we've got such horrible energy policies under what President Biden's done to shut down American energy that families can't even afford to put gas in their tanks. And so we brought legislation to the floor to lower the cost of gasoline. And you know what? Those bills were rejected by the previous majority. And I use that term for a reason, previous majority, because we want a majority talking about fixing those problems. But we can't start fixing those problems until we elect Kevin McCarthy as our next speaker. And so what have we laid out? We've got bills just this week to start addressing some of those problems, to start addressing our energy insecurity that's been created when President Biden shut down American energy. There is absolutely no reason that we need to rely on foreign countries to produce our energy. We could produce it all here, cleaner, better, more efficient, and create American jobs in the process. Let's get those bills to this floor. How long have we been highlighting this open southern border? That's not just brought millions of people across our border. Kevin McCarthy's led delegations down to the border 
to show what the problem is. We know what the problem is. This president refuses to even admit the problem. It's kind of hard for the president to solve a problem when he doesn't even admit it's a problem. Yet let's talk about the numbers. Over 2 million people have come across our border illegally just last year. That's more than the entire state of New Mexico have come into our country illegal, and this president won't even admit it's a problem. Last year alone, we lost over 100,000 young people to deaths from drugs like fentanyl because we have an open southern border. Everybody should be appalled by that stat. The fact that more than 100 of our youngest, best and brightest kids are dead in America because of the fentanyl coming across of our open southern border. These are drugs made in China coming across our southern border and brought into every community in America. And it should stop. It has to stop, but it won't stop until either the president takes action, which he won't, or we pass legislation on the floor to fix those problems. But that doesn't start until we elect Kevin McCarthy as our speaker. We know what the challenges are. We've laid out solutions to these problems. It's sad to say these aren't problems that are very hard to fix because we weren't in this situation just a few years ago. But if the administration doesn't want to fix these problems, people call on us to do that. And it starts here in the people's house. Let's rise to this challenge. Let's meet the challenges that the American people sent to all of us, not just the Republicans, not just the Democrats, but all 434, soon to be 435 of us. We can meet those challenges, but let's start by electing Kevin McCarthy as our next speaker. I yield back. All right. So that was Steve Scalise, who is poised to be the majority leader. Now, just as we were playing that for you, Chip Roy, a Republican from Texas who's been on this show many times, he got up and gave a speech, again nominating Jim Jordan for speaker. Jordan got 19 votes in the last round compared to 203 for McCarthy. Jim Jordan is an outspoken McCarthy supporter. So here we are. Round three is about to start. This is the third ballot. Hadn't gone to a second ballot even in 100 years. So this would now now be the third ballot. Unclear if anything is going to move at all, if anything's going to change at all in this third vote. Chip Roy nominated Jordan as the Republican alternative. So let's game out a couple scenarios here. And I'm not an expert on this, just to be perfectly transparent here. It seems to me that at some point, One of three things is going to have to happen. Number one, these backbencher members who won't get on board with McCarthy feel like at some point they've made their point. They've inflicted enough humiliation on him or whatever. And at this point, they are, you know, in the future, hypothetically, whether it's this round or the next round or beyond, they decide, all right, enough is enough. Let's just finally vote for McCarthy. We've made whatever point we wanted to make. That's option one. Option two, and I saw some people talking about this on social media, the Democrats are all sticking around. They're enjoying this immensely. This is Republican disarray. They don't want to bail the Republicans out at all. They are sticking around. They are voting over and over again in lockstep for their leader, Hakeem Jeffries, to be speaker. So he got the exact same number of votes both times, 212. Every House Democrat voting for him. But at some point, if this just drags on for hours into the night or for days, 
you wonder if the Democrats start to maybe trickle out of the chamber, go on to other things, and then the denominator starts to shift. The denominator, right, of the fraction, if there's fewer Democrats voting, there are fewer votes needed to get to a majority of the votes being cast. All right, it's not a majority of 435. It's a majority of the votes cast. So maybe at some point this peters out and the Democrats start to tire of it, making the math a little bit easier for McCarthy, and that's how that happens. All right, that's another scenario. Then there's the third scenario, and the reason I wanted to play that clip of Scalise would Steve Scalise potentially, because you might have to, if, if McCarthy isn't going to get there, right, if this keeps going over and over again, embarrassment after embarrassment, McCarthy's not going to become the speaker. Let's say that becomes clear. That's not my prediction. I'm just saying it's at least plausible here. If that happens, at some point you would think the Republicans would have to huddle together and come up with an actual plan B. Could Steve Scalise, who is a little bit to McCarthy's right, Ideologically, he's from Louisiana, which is much redder territory than California. Scalise has some, I would say, residual goodwill after the assassination attempt. He's well-liked by the caucus, by the conference. Could he be potentially an alternate, uh, an alternate or alternative consensus pick if it's not going to be McCarthy? I just don't know how you get there. McCarthy would have to stand down. Right? I, I, I can't imagine, because the reporting also is that some of the pro-McCarthy faction, they're so angry at this small handful of Republicans who are throwing a wrench into the gears on all of this. They don't want to give an inch in the other direction. They don't want to reward this. So McCarthy, under this third scenario, would have to stand down and allow someone else to have a shot at it. Now, I don't think there'd be any guarantee that these people would vote for Scalise either. That's part of the issue that I have here. Again, not that I'm some Kevin McCarthy stan. Oh, you know, love Kevin has to be Kevin, only Kevin. That's not really my mentality, but there has to be some viable plan, anything that makes sense. Scalise, maybe, maybe could be that. I don't know. But I don't think being and working so closely, being so close to McCarthy, I don't think Scalise would engineer that thing on his own. It would have to be McCarthy recognizing he couldn't get there. And I don't know if that happens, how long it would take. They are now on the third ballot. There are already four votes against McCarthy on the Republican side for Jim Jordan. I think, what, they have room for one more? That's it. In the very early stages of round three. So on it goes, and we'll keep you posted as this unfolds, just blocks from where we sit on The Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson. I saw some headlines about a group of billionaires getting together. Oprah and George Soros and... Bill Gates and some others. I guess they're very concerned about the environment. And they were all in vigorous agreement that there's just too many people on the planet. Overpopulation. The whole Malthusian thing. These billionaires rigorously nodding along. There's just too many plebes out there. Someone ought to do something about that. Creepy, creepy vibes. 
like the wealthiest people in the world all gathering together to complain that there are too many human beings on the planet. It's just not really a feel-good story to me. Then you had 60 Minutes joining in on the parade with a very cheerful Happy New Year on Sunday. In a segment on that signature news program, CBS News, Paul Ehrlich was quoted extensively as one of the experts. He's a biologist, Malthusian. He's one of these guys who has been crying wolf about the downfall of humanity and the planet literally for decades. He's been wrong over and over again, like embarrassingly so. And yet he was cited, quoted, put on the air as some sort of authority on this about why we should all be very scared about the demise of humanity and our planet. You would think that someone would discredit himself with big, bold predictions. Like if I came on the air constantly and made dramatic predictions that then were spectacularly incorrect, at some point I would hope people would stop listening to me. Like, oh, there he goes again, just a crank. I know there are some people in this industry who, like, make a living being wrong all the time. They don't seem to actually pay a price for it. I think trying to be correct and then having some accountability in your predictions, your analysis, that sort of thing, I think that would generally be a healthy thing. Paul Ehrlich, so Ajit Pai, former FCC chairman, tweeted out just a few examples of Ehrlich's previous claims and projections. For example, in the late 60s, he said the battle to feed all of humanity is over. In the 1970s, hundreds of millions of people will starve to death. Obviously wrong. In fact, there have been more people pulled out of abject poverty and out of hunger and starvation than ever before. Thanks largely, by the way, to free market capitalism. Want to put in that plug because it happens to be true. Then in the early 70s, Ehrlich also predicted, quote, in 10 years, all important animal life in the sea will be extinct. That was 15 years before I was born, he said that. And we don't have mass extinction in our oceans, do we? The whales and other sea creatures are still kicking, thank God. Dead wrong on that. Also in the early 70s, same guy, Paul Ehrlich, said, I would take even money that England will not exist in the year 2000. Well, here we are 23 years after that deadline. England still around. They've got a new king, actually. And then 60 Minutes, which considers itself and puts itself out markets itself as like the premier news magazine, serious broadcast news magazine in the country. And, of course, I mean, they fall flat and have on a number of occasions back to the Dan Rather scandal, smearing George W. Bush. Ron DeSantis took them to the cleaners when they tried to smear him. But this seems like such an unforced error. Did no one go back to check this man's record of what he's been saying now? Why would you put him on the air to basically, unchallenged, say things like this in Cut 29? I know there's no political will to do any of the things that I'm concerned with, which is exactly why I and 
the vast majority of my colleagues think we're, we've had it, that the next few decades will be the end of the kind of civilization we're used to. Well, at least this time he's making predictions a few decades out, so he'll be gone by the time they're proven wrong. And Scott Pelley of CBS News closed things out with this upbeat comment in Cut 30. The five mass extinctions of the ancient past were caused by natural calamities, volcanoes, and an asteroid. Today, if the science is right, humanity may have to survive a sixth mass extinction in a world of its own making. If the science is right, which science are we talking about? Paul Ehrlich's science? Like the guy who said all marine life would be dead by 1980, that guy? If that science is right, humanity may have to survive a sixth mass extinction event? Look, who knows what's coming down the pike? How or why? Sometimes we're reminded of our mortality and really how little control we have over most things in this life. But I think we've been through a lot the last couple of years. Been pretty traumatic in a lot of ways. And I'm not sure we need CBS News or anyone else trying to scare the hell out of us and using a discredited doomsayer to do so. I don't want to be Pollyannish on this show. I try to be pretty clear-eyed. And maybe we are all doomed. Who knows? God knows. That's it. But I'm not going to live my life that way. I hope you don't either. In any case, we hope that you tune in at least tomorrow and the next day and the next day (laughs) here on The Guy Benson Show, which continues with Andy McCarthy right after this break. My guess is Andy will not predict the end of the world, but we'll see. Stay tuned. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. Halfway through today's show, I'm Guy Benson. Thank you for being here with us. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. Podcast free every day. And with us now, Andy McCarthy, Fox News contributor, former federal prosecutor, author of multiple best-selling books. Andy, great to have you back here. Happy New Year to you. Happy New Year, Guy. Great to be with you. Your Mets have had quite an offseason, all of a sudden spending lots of money on big players. Mets fans love it. They used to hate it when the Yankees did it. Yeah, you know, I think we've, uh, we've got $90 million tied up in 40-year-old pitchers, which I think is bigger than the, like the Pirates and the, and the Rays yeah. payrolls. So we'll <laughs> see how it all goes, and we'll see what happens with Correa. But, you know, look, you, you can't be – if you've complained about the Wolfons for 20 years, you can hardly complain about this. That's, I think, totally fair. Andy, you have a provocative piece out at National Review calling for the impeachment of President Biden over the security catastrophe, you call it, at the southern border. Look, and you've made arguments in the past about what constitutes impeachable conduct. I remember you made some arguments against Barack Obama on this front as well when he was president. I think there's a case to be made, for example, on the student loan power grab, which I think was definitely unlawful that could potentially be technically impeachable what's the difference in your mind between something that would fit the definition or rise to the level of an impeachable offense versus what is politically realistic because 
I don't really think any Republicans are seriously talking about trying to impeach the president. I'm not sure they're wrong in that regard either. How do you navigate those waters? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And that was the book that I wrote, Guy, in 2014 about impeachment makes precisely that point, that uh, if you are in a position where you don't actually have the votes to get removal accomplished in a Senate trial, then uh, what you run the risk of in the House is an impeachment that's completely political, which is exactly the kind of impeachment that the uh, that the framers uh, frowned on. And more, and practically speaking, what I, what I argued back then was that it would also be emboldening for a president who was engaged in bad conduct, because if you you know basically demonstrate that you can't impeach and remove the person. Uh, then they're encouraged to engage in, you know, double down in the bad conduct. And I think there's an argument to be made that that's what we saw with uh, President Trump. They did a very politicized impeachment of him over Ukraine, and uh, that could have had the effect of uh, emboldening him uh, in the bad conduct after the 2020 election. So I, I get all that. My thing here, Guy, is if you don't have borders, you don't have a country. So this is a profound national security problem. And what the framers intended was that impeachment, it's not so much do you remove the president and disqualify him for the future as is impeachment a credible threat? Is it something that a president wants to avoid? Uh, the framers thought it was indispensable to get good conduct out of the executive to have the impeachment be a viable remedy. And my belief is that uh, number one, if we're talking about conduct that actually could uh, be existential, certainly for some of the border states, uh, it doesn't – you know, what did, how much worse could it get if Biden is uh, impeached and acquitted in the Senate? And more importantly, an impeachment trial rivets the country's attention to whatever the misconduct alleged is that causes the, uh, the impeachment to happen. And I can't think of a, an issue in my – lifetime that has demanded more attention than what's going on in the southern border, which a vast amount of the country doesn't seem to appreciate the seriousness of. Is there a risk? Because I agree with you certainly on the degree of the crisis. We cover it faithfully, relentlessly here because it is so undercovered so many other places. I do worry about, and I know this is more of a public opinion and public relations concern, but I do worry about the sense of overreach if people say, oh, look, here are the Republicans trying to impeach President Biden. We don't think that that's necessary. We don't think that's a good idea. Could that actually further diminish actually in the public consciousness the seriousness of the crisis? Because, yes, there would be some attention paid to it, but people might say because the mechanism being used is so inappropriate that they are going to sort of not – care about the underlying issue. That seems to be the other side of this double-edged sword. Yeah, well, I, I said two things about that guy. Number one, you don't have to go from zero to DEFCON 5, right? So what I'm saying in the first instance is you have to have an impeachment investigation to call attention to this in a way that the country has not paid it attention. Uh, and I think I agree with you about the way it's been covered at Fox. Um, but 
there's a different dimension when something becomes an accusation for a presidential impeachment. So that's number one. Uh, and my hope, by the way, would be that that causes Biden to behave better and to change his policy, and then he doesn't get impeached, which I think is what everybody should prefer. The second thing is there is already underway, and the wheels are turning toward this idea of impeaching Mayorkas, who was the head of the Department of Homeland Security. So it's not like this isn't going to happen anyway. And what I don't like about a Mayorkas impeachment, I'm not completely opposed to it, but what it undermines is the framers designed a unitary executive with the idea that by reposing all power in the president, who is the elected official, the president could not escape accountability for the misconduct of his administration by blaming it on unelected subordinates. That's the reason we have a unitary president, for example, rather than a privy council. The framers wanted the blame for the bad things that happened to be placed where it belonged, which is with the elected official. So uh, what I'm saying is if we're going to go down this road anyway with respect to Mayorkas, then we might as well point the finger of blame where it belongs. This is not a Mayorkas crisis. He's carrying out Biden's policies. Yeah, I mean, I get it. And I understand, in theory, the point that you're making. I just think that, if I had to guess, an effort to impeach this president over really any issue that's before us right now would be unsuccessful, first of all, in terms of removing him from office. Maybe they wouldn't even get the votes to impeach the guy at all. Uh, House Republicans uh, may not be able to get much of anything done in the House based on what we've seen earlier today. Uh, I think it would be unpopular with the American people and therefore could actually perversely And you sort of touched on this, Andy, we're down to the benefit of the president and further encourage him and embolden him to do even more because it's like, you know, they're not going to touch me. The public is now soured on them even further. I'm going to keep doing full speed ahead or even worse. That's my worry here. So I think that's maybe where our disagreement would mostly lie. No, I I, I can see that. I guess the way I look at it, this is all, you know, you have to weigh the cost and the benefits. I think that the security challenge at the border is so profound that this is so much like a foreign invasion that I don't really care if there's political downside to it and that it affects other things. I think this has to be addressed. And again, what I would hope is that starting the wheels uh, of of impeachment turning would get better behavior out of the administration. But I I agree and concede to you that it's, uh, you know, that that's, That's a hope. It's not, uh, you know, I can't promise that that would happen. I just alluded to this, Andy, which is some of the dysfunction among House Republicans. Earlier in the first speaker vote went actually almost in the Democrats' favor in the sense that Hakeem Jeffries got the most votes of anyone. The Republicans sort of locked in disarray. And I don't really quite understand what the end goal is here of some of the holdouts. And this has been playing out for weeks Rather than getting bogged down in that, the broader question moving forward is, will the House Republicans be able to govern at all, given that their very first bite at the governing apple was such a debacle, something that hasn't happened in 100 years, a failed speaker vote on the first ballot? I mean, and relatedly, in your neck of the woods, you live in the New York area. You know, George Santos, this guy, we've had him on the show. I talked about him before the Christmas break on the show as well, invited him here on the program. He's 
sort of looking like a pariah right now. No one's talking to him. He's a duly elected member of the House of Representatives. But, you know, what an embarrassment for the Republicans, given everything that he's now kind of admitted and might have to admit to in the future. But they don't have much of a margin for error. And he seems like at least kind of like a loyal leadership soldier. So they can't really afford to lose many folks like that. Just talk about some of these dynamics as the new Congress gets rolling. Well, you know, Guy, I think it's interesting that we talk about this after our first topic, because I have to say I'm a lot less worried about the public reaction to an impeachment push than I am about what's gone on in the first hours of the new Republican majority. Because I think that with respect to impeachment, you would have to you know, get a kind of a, a organized, unified conference on that particular aim, and then you would expose a, a problem that very much needs exposure to the country so that even if there were political downside, you would at least have that upside. I don't see any upside to what's happened in the opening hours of the of the new Republican majority. I, I must say, I mean, if you're the country taking this in and you're not a political uh, person like, like we are and mm-hmm. you don't do this for a living, you have to be looking at this and saying – you know, why would we trust these guys? They can't even, you know, forget about like opposing Biden. They can't even agree among themselves, uh, you know, who the Republicans should be led by. Well, and Andy, that, but here's the thing. That might be the reaction of so-called like average normal people who don't follow this every day for a living. I do follow this every day for a living. And that is also my reaction. <laughs> right. Well, there you have it. Then. I mean, I, I think that's <laughs> absolutely right. And the problem with Santos is – you know, exactly as you say, they need every single – every Republican with a pulse who's an elected member of the House, they they need. Um, and every every degree to which the majority becomes more narrow, it becomes more tenuous, uh, and already it's dealing with the, you know, the downside of being divided government rather than, a, you know, a, a unified congressional Republican majority. So it, there's a lot of problems here. There's Supreme Court precedent that – um, would make it very difficult to re- for Congress to remove Santos. So I think unless there, there's political pressure that's brought, brought to bear from him, probably more in New York than in Washington, uh, he's going to to take that seat. And I I just think though, guy, that it wouldn't be as big of a problem. It would be embarrassing, but it wouldn't be as big of a problem if it didn't so easily fold into what looks like. You come out of the gates with complete dysfunction. I mean, we start with thinking there's going to be, you know, a red tsunami, and it's it's going to indicate that, uh, you know, Republicans come into the new Congress with a, a head of uh, steam, uh, and it turns out they have a terribly disappointing performance in the midterms. Then they get to Washington and they can't get out of their own way, and I yeah. think Santos becomes like a, a, an emblem for all of that. Well, it's part of the clown show atmosphere, which is not exactly what you want to telegraph to the country as the very first thing that you're doing as a party and a new majority trying to turn a page and present yourself to voters as a group that can govern. And last point quickly on George Santos is I've seen some people saying he should resign or he should be kicked out of the conference or sanctioned severely or thrown out of Congress. The counterpoints, and I've made them myself, are, you know, Elizabeth Warren's Massive lies about her history, Richard Blumenthal lying about serving in Vietnam, Joe Biden just fabricating memories and life stories left and right for his whole career. 
various scandals involving plagiarism and all of that. To some extent, that strikes me as whataboutism or moral relativism. It's like, well, look what these guys have done. So, and, and I get that. I'm not really using those examples as an affirmative defense of George Santos and, and all of these lies that he's apparently told. It just does raise the question, what rises to the level of being dishonesty so bad that you're sort of cast out of the club of elected officials in good standing? Because it seems like our our tolerance for mendacity is pretty high. Yeah, well, what I would say, Guy, is that that is really up to his constituents more than Washington is, more than it is in Washington. If he's committed some crime, that's another story, and we can visit that. But if it's and he just might have the cut, well, maybe he did, and then and then we'll see. But in the meantime, I'm I'm kind of where I think you're leading, which is I don't believe in unilateral disarmament. That doesn't mean I'm I'm you know announcing an encomium for Santos, but would a Democrat in this instance, uh, especially if it was a, from a Republican state where? If there was intervention by the state government, there would be a Democrat appointed to fill the seat. Would a Democrat resign? I don't think so. Yeah, I tend to agree. Oh, well, what a mess. And an interesting note on which to begin this new year of broadcasts here on The Guy Benson Show. Our first interview, hopefully of many this year, with our friend Annie McCarthy, our colleague here at Fox News, former assistant U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York. You can buy and read his multiple best-selling books. Follow him on Twitter, as I do, at Andrew C. McCarthy. Andy, it's great to have you. We'll talk again soon. Thanks so much, Guy. The Guy Benson Show, back after this. The Guy Benson Show. More next. Fox News alert on The Guy Benson Show. Let's bring you up to speed on what is happening in the House of Representatives. They are on round three of balloting, the third ballot. In the first ballot, the vote was 212 to 203 to 19, Jeffries, McCarthy, and other. The second ballot was exactly the same. No changes at all. Now, in this third round that is currently underway, the vote is 209 for Hakeem Jeffries, 201 for Kevin McCarthy, and now... 20 votes for Jim Jordan. So McCarthy has lost ground in terms of the number of Republicans who are now voting against him. It had been 19 and 19, and now it's 20. Now, a question here becomes what the denominator looks like. There is some reporting, and I mentioned this earlier in the hour, some reporting that some Democrats are, like, getting bored and restless with this because they're just sitting there voting over and over again for Hakeem Jeffries. They might try to force an adjournment so they could go home for the night. Kevin McCarthy, if he feels like ultimately it would benefit him to keep this thing going deep, deep, deep into the night— So people start dropping off. Democrats maybe don't show up. That shifts the denominator in his favor. He needs to win fewer votes to get to a majority. He would want to defeat any type of resolution, you would think, to adjourn the chamber. Right now, it looks like the vote is 210 to 202, now 211 to 202 to 20. 
So that's the, the two numbers to keep an eye on are people, Republicans, voting against McCarthy, which is 19, 19, and now 20, and then also the overall number of members voting. And if people start to go home for the night and the denominator of this fraction changes, then the math changes as well, obviously. But this thing is up in the air. McCarthy has lost round three again. So there will be a round four tonight, next hour, tomorrow, We don't know. Total chaos. The Guy Benson Show coming back with our final hour up next. General Jack Keene is here with the latest on Ukraine. We'll keep you updated. Stay with us on a very interesting and historic day in Washington, D.C. It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. It is the Happy Hour here on the Guy Benson Show. On this Tuesday, thank you so much for being here. Happy New Year. Very pleased to be back in the chair behind this microphone with all of you. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. GuyBensonShow.com. The podcast is free every day on demand. Follow us on social media at GuyBensonShow, Twitter and Instagram. And this hour is sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink, which I had some of over the holidays, indulged a little bit. In our friend's product, which is just delicious and refreshing, also alcoholic, so please drink responsibly. 21 plus only, thelongdrink.com is their website to find out where they're sold near you. New year, same website, same great drink, thelongdrink.com. Joining us now is General Jack Keane, retired four-star general, chairman of the Institute for the Study of War, and Fox News senior strategic analyst. And General, it's great to have you back. Happy New Year. Well, Happy New Year to you, Guy, and your audience as well. Thank you. There's been a lot of chatter coming out of Ukraine about what Ukrainians are saying has been a successful attack on a Russian base that could have resulted in as many as hundreds of Russian deaths among their soldiers there. Where was this base? What are you hearing? What's the strategic value? Yeah, what this actually is is... um it's in the town of Makivka, which is about 13 kilometers north of, of uh, Donetsk uh, in the Luhansk uh, province of, of the Donbass region. So it's in the southeastern corner of Russian-occupied uh, territory. And this was uh, a very heavily concrete building, uh, typical in that part of the world. And it was uh, a technical or a vocational school. And what the Russians had done is uh, they put a sizable organization uh, in that school. Um, And obviously that was reckless in doing that, knowing full well that that school and that being used as a barracks and was in the range of long-range artillery, in this case uh, Ukrainian HIMARS weapons. And it was New Year's Eve, and they were celebrating and having a good time. And many of them were using cell phones, uh, we think, uh, to call home uh, to family members, girlfriends, etc. The Ukrainians were able to pick up 
on the density of that traffic and obviously locate it and confirm what they had already suspected. Uh, this was a very active Russian uh, location in terms of uh, troop concentration. Uh, so they By the way, just, just to uh, jump in, just on that point, General, from an operational security standpoint, that seems like an egregious failure. I understand a desire to get on the cell phone and call loved ones and say Happy New Year. But if you're in the middle of a war and that's going to pinpoint your location and a densely populated spot where a lot of Russian soldiers are at any given moment, that seems, frankly, idiotic. Yeah, I mean, it, it really is. Uh, certainly to have a troop concentration like that, uh, that we refer to that as administrative. That's how we barracks our soldiers away from the guns administratively. They should have been dispersed tactically, spread out, so they're not vulnerable uh, to an artillery attack, certainly not in the kind of density they had. And it's, it's compounded by the fact that they were storing artillery ammunition in the bottom of this facility. And when uh, HIMARS hit, that absolutely increased the level of casualties quite dramatically because the building just literally blew up with the soldiers in it. Conservatively, the Russians have admitted 63 dead and over 100 wounded. Ukrainians think it's a few hundred dead. Some reliable sources that uh, the Institute for the Study of War pays attention to at least admit over 100 Russian killed and a couple of hundred uh, wounded for sure. Uh, and yes, this, the Russians are absolutely humiliated by this, to be sure. And the heads will roll, certainly, on the Russian side, uh, uh, g- given what you've already pointed out as, as being egregious and really quite reckless. Not just amateur hour. Now, the Ukrainians are anticipating retaliation, they say. The Russians have been humiliated, so they're going to have to probably go and do something such as additional war crimes. They don't care who they kill. They kill civilians all the time. What kind of retaliations might the Ukrainian people be bracing for? Well, I think it'd just be more of the same, uh, maybe an increased density of what they're doing, and that is, you know, air, drone, and missile attack on civilian infrastructure and civilian population centers to break the will of the Ukrainian people. And, and I mean, it, this continuing bombing uh, certainly has taken its toll, uh, but on all accounts that uh, we're plugged into at the Institute of Study of War, the Ukrainians are steadfast. If anything, the resolve has increased, uh, you know, as a result of it, which is, which is not surprising. Bombing campaigns against civilian populations uh, have had a tendency not to accomplish the stated objective and have the tendency sometimes to increase the resolve of those being bombed. Uh, certainly going back to World War II and the bombing of, uh, of, of England, uh, by the Nazis was case in point, and particularly focusing it on London. It, it really strengthened their resolve more than anything. Heading into winter and extremely cold temperatures in that region, what does the war look like over the next few months? Obviously, the invasion happened almost a year ago. Early days, very cold, snow on the ground, that sort of thing. I've read a few times experts saying things like Putin and the Kremlin, they're going to try to use winter as a weapon against the Ukrainians. What exactly does that mean? And doesn't it cut both ways? 
if you have poorly supplied, demoralized troops from the Russians trying and failing to occupy a foreign country, what does another cold winter of this conflict look like? Yeah, well, the ground hasn't frozen yet, but it's pretty close. And once that takes place, there will be some movement. The Russians have been trying to take a city by the name of Bakhmut that's in the Donbass region. And they have just about culminated in attempting to do that. And the the Wagner group uh, is the group that's in the lead in in doing that. And they're financed by Yugivni Prigozhin, who's a very outspoken uh, ultra-nationalist and sometime critic of of Putin uh, and, and his military. But even that organization uh, has pretty much, while they're still conducting some offensive operations, I mean, they're, they're down to squad-level operations, and there's not much territory you can take when you're conducting squad-level operations. Generally speaking, all armies have different size squads, but around 10 people is what a squad is. And you, you don't take much territory by committing 10 people at a time. Uh, and that, that's in itself, I think, is, is really irresponsible because it's heavy casualty producing. So the Russians are not making that much progress. What, a, what has caught people's attention, and it's been in the media, is that the Russians have about 11,000 troops in Belarus. The first tank guards army is there, which is their premier organization normally based uh, in and around Moscow for a single purpose, to make certain that the regime is preserved, that is Putin and his elites. But that is deployed in that area. And it's been deployed uh, in, in Ukraine for some months. But it's concentrated in that area with conscripts and some mobilized forces training. And there's some thought that they could possibly be wanting to conduct uh, an operation against Kiev again, from that location. There's been release of information operations by the Russians to that effect. Uh, The Ukrainians initially bought into it, but they have since discounted it. And they think it's more of a a training position uh, where they they can train and obviously are not going to be impeded uh, by any uh, attacks from the Ukrainians, but also uh, to create a diversion so the Ukrainians concentrate more forces in the north than what they normally would be. And and the Institute for the Study of War, we, we sort of agree with that assessment, that this is unlikely going to manifest itself into any attack by the Russians from the north. So it's a ruse. So yes, from Belarus, right. And the Belarus military, they don't want any part of this war. Lukashenko, who's their uh, dictator, longest-serving dictator in Russia, really doesn't want his troops involved in a war. And even if they were a guy, he's got a, about three to four, at best, operational brigades, not particularly well-trained, not particularly well-equipped, and they would not be consequential at all if they, even if they, even if they were committed. The Ukrainians are likely, we believe, when the ground freezes have a couple of options. Option one that they may be leaning the most towards is to expand uh, and retake territory in the Luansk portion of the Donbass region, which is the eastern portion of the Donbass, or move uh, in the Saporizia Oblast 
uh, towards the town of Melitopol, not uh, Mariupol, but Melitopol. And it's on the Sea of Azov, and it would cut off and separate uh, the land bridge that the Russians uh, have pretty much been able to establish in the south. And that would have more strategic value. What, the Ukrainians are keeping this pretty close to their chest for obvious reasons. Yeah. But they will conduct some offensive operation to retake territory. So there was this little boomlet of buzz about the possibility of peace negotiations a couple days ago, maybe a week ago, which seemed hopeful. Perhaps it was wishful thinking. But it seemed like both sides pretty categorically and forcefully shut that down. And so it would appear that at least for the time being, it's status quo and maybe some shifts at the margins. But are we staring at a prolonged war well into 2023 at least? Yeah, I think pretty much so for a couple of reasons. One, the Russians want this. They know full well that they cannot retake a lot of territory and bring this to a favorable conclusion. So he, Putin, I think, has developed a strategy of protracted war, wear down the Ukrainians' will by the air campaign, and also hopefully um, political diversion, division inside the United States uh, will diminish the United States' support for the war and certainly the energy problems and economic issues inside the European uh, coalition would diminish their support as well. That is what he's looking for. Um, so I think uh, Putin, at the end of the day, would take a ceasefire now, but he knows full well that Zelensky's not about to, to go to that because Zelensky knows full well that he still has the opportunity to retake territory, and he's going to stay focused on that until such time as he's not able to. And, and I think he's able to. Now, I do believe, uh, Guy, in criticizing this administration. I think it's commendable the support that they've provided. And it's remarkable that the Europeans have stayed together for as long as they have in providing support as well. But the fact is, the way to end this war favorably and stop the killing and the horrific uh, suffering of the Ukrainian people is give them all the things that they need to conduct successful counteroffensive campaigns. So let me on on that point, and and perhaps we can continue this conversation another time and get specifically into the details of what you mean by that. But broadly speaking, before we get into those specifics in a future conversation, there are a number of people, some on the hard left, some on the right in this country, perhaps I would say growing in volume at least in terms of their outspokenness in the belief that we have spent enough money in Ukraine, that we should not be sending any more American resources to the Ukrainians. And there's in the new Republican majority, whenever that gets going, there's a growing number of Republican members who are saying maybe the time has come to stop funding the Ukraine war effort. What is your response to that? What is the American interest, in your view, in helping Ukraine defeat the Russians? Well, first of all, uh, if we don't, if, if Ukraine isn't able to retake territory, we go into a protracted war and then eventual stalemate and we have a ceasefire, the Russians will wind up with more territory than they had prior to the 24th invasion, the February 24 invasion. That will be, uh, Russia will rebuild and rearm and reposition itself 
And that will be the starting point for the next invasion. Russia is not going away if we end in that kind of a stalemated finish. And the, the, what seems obvious to us at the Institute is that the best way to end this is to defeat the Russian troops inside of Ukraine summarily, take as much territory as you possibly can back, take it all back if possible. But that can only be done if, if Ukraine gets tanks, armored vehicles, uh, long-range missile attackums, and possibly even uh, <clears throat> fighter jets and warplanes to assist them. But this administration has been reluctant to pass any of that equipment to them for that kind of an operation. General Jack Keane, retired four-star general, chairman of the Institute for the Study of War, deeply informed on all of this. We appreciate your insight. He's, of course, also Fox News' senior strategic analyst. And, General, we look forward to chatting with you on the air throughout the year. Hopefully more good news to come on this front, and we really do appreciate it. Thank you so much. Yeah, I look forward to it again, Guy. Thank you very much. The Guy Benson Show resumes right after this break. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. Back here on the Guy Benson Show, let's bring you a Fox News alert. It appears that just literally a few seconds ago, Republican Congressman Tom Cole offered a motion to adjourn the House until noon tomorrow, and the motion has passed. I think they just did a voice vote. So unless I misheard what just happened, yeah, the House has adjourned. There's no Speaker of the House. After three ballots, there was no outcome. You need a majority of the voting members. No one had a majority. Democrat Hakeem Jeffries had 212 votes on all three ballots. Every Democrat voted for him. Kevin McCarthy had 203, 203, 202. And other... Most recently, Jim Jordan had 19, 19, and 20. So they're at an impasse. It didn't seem like much progress was being made. And I guess there's enough confusion and uncertainty that the members writ large decided that the best thing to do is to just leave. So there's no Speaker of the House. The House is adjourned until tomorrow. Three failed votes for Speaker. And we'll see what happens in the coming hours. It's going to be a tumultuous night and morning among House Republicans again. Might a consensus emerge? (laughs) We'll see. It's the Guy Benson Show. We'll be right back. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. It's the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour. Earlier on today's program, Will Kane, co-host of Fox and Friends Weekend, joined us here on the show to discuss, among other things, a very scary incident during Monday Night Football last night. It has really captured the nation's attention. Here's part of that conversation with Will Kane from earlier. I watched a few minutes of it and then went off to do a few other things. Then I saw social media starting to blow up with a lot of concerned messages. And then, of course, I went back and saw what happened uh, extremely disturbing. Damar Hamlin, safety for Buffalo, 
seemed to take a hit right in the chest and suffered a cardiac arrest. Uh, There was a a statement put out just a little while ago by the Bills saying that he remains in critical condition. There was a statement earlier from the family thanking everyone for their support and their prayers. Uh, Just as someone who has covered sports professionally, and you and I talk sports all the time here on the air, I'm not sure I can remember something quite like this. And it is a huge national news story really transcending just the realm of sports fans. Yeah, and I think you chose the right word when you said it's disturbing. Uh, We're just not used to seeing somebody have CPR administered to them on the field. And, you know, when we we watch football, we've come to expect medical emergencies. They almost always take the form of head or spinal trauma. And, you know, I was listening on the radio. Guy, I was at a family Christmas and driving back with my sons in the car, and um, you hear it, and you're like, oh, no, and you're thinking – you know, we're in another situation of somebody potentially fighting off paralysis in their life. And then when I eventually got to see it and heard them describe what was that, what was happening, it's just it's it's not as though it never has happened. Um, people are pointing out in the 1970s something like this happened, and and then Reggie Brown in the 1990s wasn't breathing, but his was more due to you know the spinal and and head trauma. Um, you know, in in when I first started at ESPN, Guy, you and I have known each other for a long time, and I, I first started at ESPN in 2015, and I did investigative um, reporting for Outside the Lines, their investigative news program. And one of the first pieces they assigned me to do, ultimately it didn't end up airing, was on this this type of injury called uh, commotio cortis. Uh, it's a myocardial contusion. I sound like I'm trying to play doctor, but I only know this stuff <laughs> enough to get me in trouble and having done a little bit of research. But it's a very, very rare occurrence. And most of the time you hear about it in baseball or lacrosse, uh, even soccer, where you have a blunt force to the chest area. um, And then it disrupts the electrical rhythm of the heart and can send someone into cardiac arrest. I don't know if that's what happened here. Many people are saying so. Last night they'd have had cardiologists on the Fox News Channel or ESPN looking at this from afar and saying that's what it could be. But it is reflective of the thing – that I researched some some years ago, and there's really not much you can do, guy. I mean, there's you know uh, there's been some push to have AEDs available at every sporting event, and certainly there is in the NFL. They have everything available. It's the next best place to be from a hospital room um, in terms of the number of doctors and equipment and response time right there on an NFL field. But you know, it's just an incredibly rare occurrence. That I don't think we sit here today and talk about the game of football and how dangerous the game of football is. It is dangerous. There's no doubt about it. But I think you know what what we saw happen is very sad, and and hopefully, if it turns out to be the case, a very rare occurrence in professional yeah, and sports. kind of like a freak a freak incident where it takes just exactly the wrong confluence of unlikely events to all happen perfectly in this horribly imperfect way to then create this cardiac disruption that obviously afflicted DeMar Hamlin in some way. And we don't we don't have all the answers. And I know some of the speculation out there is from doctors. Some of it has been extremely reckless stuff, people pushing agendas. I don't want to get into any of that. I do want to ask you, though, Will, and I think your point about that particular condition, other experts have made that point. I think it's a, it's a very reasonable hypothesis to have at this point. There has been criticism of the NFL and the indecision, how long it took them to say we're not going to continue playing this game tonight, people going after the commissioner, Roger Goodell. Uh, Do you think that is warranted criticism? Do you think that sort of 
maybe fog of war type thing where people are, are just looking to lash out at someone. What do you think about that? I don't think so. You know, I don't think criticism is fair of the NFL. They're dealing with real-time information in a tragedy that has not occurred at least in 50 years on their fields, at least in that exact type of scenario. And the fact that they took a little over an hour to officially call the game is not something – I think the world is full of armchair quarterbacks. And in the age of social media, it's immediate armchair quarterbacking. And the NFL and the game of football itself are very easy targets when it comes – to this armchair quarterbacking. I don't, I don't find criticism in allowing the NFL to take in as much information as possible before making a decision. From everything that I've read, deferring to the teams, deferring to the players, I think the NFL handled this as, as well as can be expected. My full discussion with Will Kane, Fox & Friends weekend co-host, available online, GuyBensonShow.com, also as part of our free podcast, the whole show on demand every day, Totally free, no charge to you. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, the home stretch, a little recap of New Year's. We've got a lot to catch up on. We'll do that with the gang straight ahead. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. Home stretch. Here on this Tuesday, it's the Guy Benson Show, GuyBensonShow.com, podcast free, on demand every day. As I've mentioned a few times on the broadcast today, just very pleased to be back here with all of you. Needed the time off, really enjoyed it, but started to get the itch, like, all right, it's time to get back to work. I was probably ready yesterday, honestly. But here we are today. I do want to say this because I have been wishing multiple guests and people around the building a happy new year. I will continue to do so for a few more days. But I think once we get to next week, I'm done. Because it's sort of an awkward thing. How long do you say Happy New Year for? And when do you start? I find that I won't really start going with Merry Christmas until December. And then saying Merry Christmas after Christmas, even a few days after Christmas, starts to feel almost sad to me because Christmas is now gone. It's in the past. So I usually transition to Happy New Year, maybe the 27th or 28th of December, a preemptive Happy New Year, which I understand some people think is bad luck. I think it's hopeful. But to me, the real issue is on the other end, where you'll sometimes have folks saying Happy New Year weeks into January, even into February sometimes, and it throws me off at a certain point. So I tweeted over the holidays just my own personal policy here that I'll try to stick to, which is Happy New Year is acceptable as a term to be said out loud between December 27th and January 7th. Maybe you can push it to January 10th, like a week and a half in. At that point, it's like, okay, we're done. That's just depressing now. Maybe if you haven't seen someone, but even then, I think it's awkward. Christine, do you think that is reasonable or are you going to fight me on this? I'm actually not going to fight you. I think like the first week of January is an appropriate amount of time to, you know, wish, say, colleagues or family or friends Happy New Year. I next week will not, when I'm booking, not be putting out there Happy New Year. I will yeah. be just. Well, I'm actually, I'm back- actually kind of worried. I'm worried that we're agreeing on this because you're often so incorrect on these things. Like, for example, have you transitioned already from Happy New Year to like Happy St. Patrick's Day or something? 
Well, I first of all, there's Valentine's Day in between. So uh, oh, yes. if you're if you're asking, have <laughs> I started Valentine's festivities? The answer is yes. Megan and I went shopping over the weekend, and we got all of our Valentine's decor, and it's starting to be put up. If that's what you were asking, yes. Okay. Meanwhile, <laughs> since we've been off the air for a while here together, I do want to talk about New Year's Eve and. Just briefly football, because those two games, I know there were some games earlier in the day, Iowa and their game, for example, but the two semifinals, the playoff games, TCU-Michigan and then Georgia-Ohio State, both were games for the ages. I mean, just wildly entertaining, insane games in different ways, so much drama. I was rooting... Definitely for Michigan as a Big Ten guy and lightly for Ohio State also as a Big Ten guy. I just have some other friends who are big Georgia fans. Also, I don't love Ohio State, but I was rooting for the Buckeyes. And the Big Ten teams both came out on the wrong end of the scores. They both played admirably in certain ways. I think Michigan would probably like to have a number of plays back. The Buckeyes gave Georgia all they could handle and more. Georgia was able to come back and win. The reason I bring it up is, number one, this bowl season has been crazy. This bowl season has been so much fun. I mean, Tulane coming back the way that they did to beat USC. I'll have to confess, I was watching the game. I was doing a little bit of work yesterday. It looked like USC was going to run away with it in the second half. I went and hopped on the exercise bike to try to do some penance for my caloric sins over the holidays. Did a long ride, 45 minutes, got off the bike, checked the score, and Tulane had won. I was like, what? And I raced onto social media to watch the highlights. What an incredible game that was. And there were a number of other ones that were just terrific. Like that Kansas-Arkansas game. That was fun. Anyway, it's been a very good bowl season. And it hurts to say that as a Northwestern fan, where we were very much on the outside looking in on bowl season. We were nowhere close to bowl eligibility at 1-11, and 11, woof. But just as a fan of the sport, I like exciting games. Even games that are considered to be more minor bowls, like, you know, the Sun Bowl or whatever, that was a great game. But for the highlight, sort of the pinnacle of the sport, we were talking about this a little bit earlier with Will Kane, in those two semifinal games, it's hard to beat that when it comes to drama. Except... There was a little bit of a controversy at the New Year's Eve party that I was attending at our neighbor's house. They throw a really cool, fun, big bash every year. We were over there. The Georgia-Ohio State game went long enough that the extremely uncertain sort of hold-your-breath conclusion, the climax of the game happened right at midnight. So you had the sports fans in the room, not to stereotype, but it was mostly dudes, who were glued to the game, and then you had some other people who did not care at all about the football game, again, I'm going to say mostly the ladies, were aghast that we were not turning the channel to ABC or NBC or any of that. So we missed the countdown. All of a sudden it was like, Happy New Year. People were saying Happy New Year. There were some kisses, but people were watching the game. We actually went back. The game ended. Ohio State had a chance to win on a long field goal. They missed it. Georgia survived by a point. And then one of the hosts of the party said, let's just do a fake countdown. 
So we did a fake final 10 seconds countdown like a minute or two into the new year and then had the big toast moment. Did this happen at any of your parties by any chance? I would imagine maybe so. Christine, would you have been on the pro football side or the let's watch New Year's Rock and Eve side? Well, Guy, you know I'm a huge football fan. <laughs> Some might say fanatic. Uh-huh, yeah, yeah. By this point. Deeply passionate. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But, I uh, know, I was – we had the same exact issue at our party, but also we had about seven – kids that were staying up and they were so excited for the ball to drop into toast. So um, we forced the boys to change it. Uh, they were not happy. But it was, Did they miss was, the end? Because the end was exciting. They pulled it up on a uh, like iPad. Okay. So, right, so they were everyone, watching it there. Everyone was able to actually get what they needed. I feel like there wasn't even a specific decision made to keep the game on the TV. It was just an exciting game. People were watching it. Then all of a sudden, it was midnight. Like, it sort of snuck up on people. That's what ended up happening. Dan, did you experience anything like this? I experienced the same thing, and I was on the end that I wanted to watch the game. Yes, um, yes. Because I love college football. I love sports. Covered it for a long time. Um, so it was me and one other one other of the guys that were watching the game. It became to be about, like, 1130, and the the girls were like, Okay, can we switch it over now and watch some New Year's Eve stuff? Like, no, 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 just a few more minutes, a few more minutes. Kept going, kept going. And then so they finally kicked us out, and me and the other guy had to go watch it in their bedroom TV. And we kind of almost missed, like, the kiss at midnight with our significant others. So we got in in a little bit of the doghouse there. Yeah, but it was the Georgia Bulldog House. I know. And it was a very exciting game. Both of them really were. I mean, if you're a college football fan, you got all your money's worth and then some. Being a fan of any of those four teams, I probably would have just, I don't know, I had extreme anxiety over the course of both games. As someone who had sort of somewhat attached rooting interests, it was wildly fun and entertaining throughout. I'm glad that that one won the day, and then we had our fake countdown, then we all did our champagne toast. The one thing that I will say, non-sports related, that I saw, it was actually on the background because once the game was over, the TV was muted, there was loud music playing. But I looked over, and I think it was NBC had a concert that Miley Cyrus was starring in, and she had Dolly Parton out there with her on stage. And you know, Miley Cyrus, I'm sort of like take her or leave her on some of her songs. Dolly Parton is a national treasure, huge fan. So I was intrigued. And the next morning I got up and sort of started to recover a bit groggy, trying to maybe have a bit of food, lots of water, maybe an Advil or two. And I was scrolling through various social media feeds, and I saw some of that performance, Miley Cyrus and Dolly Parton singing together Miley's famous song, Wrecking Ball, and then transitioning into maybe the most famous song Dolly Parton ever wrote, even though she wasn't the one who made it famous, Whitney Houston was, just listen to Cut 31. I was not in a great state New Year's Day morning, but this gave me goosebumps. I never meant to start a war. I just wanted you to let me in. I guess I should have let you in. Don't you ever say I just walked away. I will always love you. 
is so good. So good. Dolly wrote, I will always love you. And there's a backstory to that. Whitney Houston, for good reason, made it famous with her rendition. But just that transition, then Miley chimed in later in the song. It was just great. So from a non-sports perspective, and having seen various performances on New Year's Eve in the past, some of which are very bad, this one was, I'd say, a home run by NBC. And I guess they had other special guests come out as well, like Paris Hilton came out at one point. Sort of forgotten about her. She was, I guess, singing or quote-unquote singing as well. That seemed like it was at least entertaining. I only glimpsed it out of the side of my eye at the party. But I might have to go back and watch the entirety of the Miley-Dolly duet. Because that's just America right there. Good way to kick off 2023. And it's great to be back here on these airwaves in 2023. A lot of content to come. It's going to be an eventful interesting year here on the program i look forward to many hours together with all of you we appreciate your listenership with that we're out of time back here tomorrow same time same place happy new year on the guy benson show Pull up a chair and join me, Rachel Campos Duffy. And me, former U.S. Congressman Sean Duffy, as we share our perspective on the discussions happening at kitchen tables across America. Download from the kitchen table, the Duffy's at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you download podcasts. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.